Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. The Guardian. How smart is your city? We have gone in this incredible transformation over the last 10, 15 years from the internet being something that was online to it being around us, you know, to the internet things, to connected objects. And it's those technologies that have slowly but surely created smart environments. Smart cities are in development all over the world, but not without critics raising concerns. The, the overarching fear of this project is there's a lot of question marks. No one really knows right now what the city will actually look like. At the beginning of June, US venture capitalist Roger McNamee warned against plans proposed by a partnership between the City of Toronto and Sidewalk Labs, a company owned by Google's parent Alphabet, to develop a 12-acre section of the city's eastern waterfront, creating a smart neighbourhood called the Quayside. McNamee isn't the only critic. Many experts argue that the more technological infrastructure we build into our cities, the less privacy the residents will have. GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, lays down requirements for consent. For example, that it should be free, um, that it should be specific, that it should be informed. Smart environments don't lend themselves well to this at all. I'm Jordan Erica Weber, and this week I look at why people are worried about big tech companies getting involved with developing smarter cities, and ask what risks these places might pose to the public. This is Chips with Everything. My name is Leyland Checo, and I'm a freelance writer based here in Toronto, Canada. Leyland recently wrote an article for Guardian Cities about new delays in the project that would turn a chunk of the Toronto waterfront into a smart city. So what happened was there's a huge tract of land down on the waterfront of Toronto, and it's about 12 acres large. And the city wanted to figure out, you know, is there a company or an organization that could develop this land? And so they they put out tenders for it. And um, in 2017, Sidewalk Labs, which is the sister company of Google, um, developed a proposal and won the, the contract. And so for the last few years, there's been this idea that Google will team up with with kind of different stakeholders to build what they call kind of the world's first smart city. And, and what that could be is a series of kind of houses made from different materials that we haven't really seen in, in, in kind of widespread use. So, you know, wood buildings, wood towers, they're kind of trying to focus the infrastructure of this area to be more geared towards pedestrians rather than kind of car and automobile heavy. So if Sidewalk Labs is a, is, is a lab, what exactly are they going to be testing here? 
It's a good question because I think the, the overarching fear of this project is there's a lot of question marks and a lot of unknowns. And that's really the genesis of a lot of the criticism that we're seeing is that everything sounds great. And you go to the website and it's glitzy. You know, it's got all these vague aphorisms and, and just slick, you know, rendered designs and pictures. But no one really knows right now what the city will actually look like. What are some of the proposed benefits for the citizens who end up living in the area once the project is finished? What are they promising? It's the idea of, of living in the future. It, it, it looks beautiful. Um, the renderings are, are, are just gorgeous. You've got these beautiful tall wood skyscrapers and it's, it's really going to give developers the ability to really test out new, often environmentally conscious ways of designing a city. I guess the question is, would you like to live in a building where it uses passive design to generate a lot of its energy, you know, floor to ceiling glass windows? You've got this beautiful mix of kind of residential and mixed use uh, buildings where, you know, your shops, your local farmers markets are, are down below. The city, you know, from a number of perspectives, looks very appealing. If, if, if you're a resident, you you get to kind of see a glimpse uh, of, of where cities could be in the future. There was initially public support for the plan, but since it was announced in 2017, more and more critics have come out of the woodwork, including some pretty high-profile people, like Roger McNamee. Chips listeners might remember that a few months ago, Alex Hearn told us about his conversation with McNamee, who was an early investor in Facebook and Google. He has some strong reservations about where the plan might lead. So Roger McNamee is, is one of a growing chorus of technology executives and investors who, while they were supportive of the plan when it first came out, have increasingly grown critical of, of what they see as kind of this, this veil over, over data collection. And so a lot of the criticisms that we're seeing right now are that you have this giant tech company that hasn't really answered questions about how it's going to collect data, what it's going to do with that data asking for almost carte blanche to develop a city. And, and so even Jim Balsillie, who is the, the founder of, or co-founder of Research in Motion, the, the, um, the maker of BlackBerry, called the city la- or Sidewalk Labs a colonizing experiment in surveillance capitalism. There's kind of this big question of what will be done with the data um, and, and what kind of data is being collected. So a lot of these critics coming out with pretty dramatic statements about this. McNamee called the plans a dystopian vision that has no place in a democratic society. What makes him say that this Quayside project is dystopian? What evidence does he have for that? McNamee's criticisms come at a time when we're seeing increasing pushback towards technology companies, specifically those that that harvest and, and kind of utilize large data sets. And because we know that, that Google or, or Sidewalk Labs will have a hand in designing that city, there's fears that they may not be forthright with how that data is collected, what that data is being used for, and, and kind of what rights may be violated for residents who may not be aware of kind of you know, what information is, is being collected on their behaviors. McNamee sketches out a pretty grim picture of what he calls surveillance capitalism, the idea that Google will go down to the most granular ways of collecting data and, and read facial expressions and use that to, to kind of guide consumer behavior and direct you towards certain businesses. I mean, Sidewalk Labs, for their part, has come out pretty vociferously against his characterization of what the data collection will look like. But until there's really you know, a set of, a set of substantive answers on their part about what data will be collected and how it'll be used, 
they've really kind of set themselves up for for critics like McNamee and, and Jim Balsillie to paint a pretty dystopic picture of, of what Toronto will look like in the future. Yeah, and Sidewalk Labs did respond and reject McNamee's criticisms, like you say. But there's also been opposition from within the project itself. Why did tech entrepreneur Sadia Muzaffar step down from the project's advisory panel? She was working with Waterfront Toronto, which is kind of the multi, multi-governmental organization that is liaising with Sidewalk Labs. So you've got municipal, provincial and federal um, governments all being a part of this. And, and she was highly critical of what she called an apathy and lack of leadership regarding what she described as kind of very shaky public trust. And that really stems from the inability from from Waterfront Toronto and from Sidewalk Labs to really clearly say, this is the project, this is the data that's being collected, this is what we're doing with it. The silence isn't helping them at all. Yeah, and then less than a month after Muzaffar stepped down, the former Privacy Commissioner of Ontario, Anne Kavukian, also resigned. What reasons did she give? Um, her letter was pretty damning. She she wrote that she imagined creating a smart city of privacy as opposed to a smart city of surveillance. And it feels like her letter really kind of strikes at the heart of what the big criticism is. That the idea was that, you know, citizens might with with this newly designed city kind of enjoy a level of privacy. But as she saw the project developing and saw all these subsequently unanswered questions about the level of data collection, you know, she saw it less of a smart city and more of a city of, of, of kind of mass surveillance. Subsequent to these criticisms, the remaining project advisory panel announced that it was delaying a planned vote on the smart city development so they can take the time to carry out a, quote, accountable, transparent and extensive evaluation of what Sidewalk Labs actually plans to do in Toronto. When Leyland contacted Sidewalk Labs for comment, he was told they didn't agree with criticisms from people like Roger McNamee. They also disputed his suggestion that they would use facial recognition in the technology and stated that McNamee, quote, does not seem very familiar with what Sidewalk Labs is actually proposing. But maybe that's part of the problem. They, they've rejected the idea that the data will be proprietary data that they own. They want to create what they call a data trust and they want to set a new standard for how data is collected, used, and stored. But again, no one knows what that data is. The question is, is, is how granular is the information they're collecting? Is it traffic patterns? Is it pedestrian behaviors? Will there be facial recognition technology? I mean, this, this, this has been an ongoing project, but it, they're already well over, over the, um, the timeline for, for when Waterfront Toronto had expected a clear plan from them. So I think, Sidewalk Labs' delays in, in, in finalizing their, their kind of plan for the city has done little to help their argument that, that they're not going to you know, run amok and create a dystopian society because no levels of government clearly have an answer for what Sidewalk Labs plans to do with the project. Should we be worried about big tech companies, as Sidewalk puts it, reimagining cities to improve the quality of life? We're ju- we're just, I think we're, we're, we're seeing an erosion of trust between the public and big tech companies. And I think the trouble is that, you know, tech will come in and say, here's all these great solutions. It looks beautiful. But are they just reinventing the wheel? I mean, it's not the first time that we've had a city say we should make it more pedestrian friendly. Transit data, street data collection is not new. Transit agencies do this all the time. So, I mean, you got to start asking, too, what is what is Sidewalk Labs proposing that's really that new? And it seems like the real kind of 
thread that ties it all together is 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 the aggregation and collection of data and and you know until those questions get answered they're really fighting an uphill battle right now after the break we move away from toronto and talk to an expert who says that having big tech companies build our smart cities is just one of many reasons we should be worried about their development so you have problems of keeping the software updated or keeping the hardware updated. And we're building this as a city, you know, in a way that I think isn't being sufficiently thought about, though, you know, the architecture people, the materials people are again getting in on this on a research level. But it's a huge infrastructural problem. More on that after the break. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Finding your perfect home was hard. But thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Voice Lab from The Guardian. Hey, do you ever want a quick catch up on the news headlines first thing in the morning while you're making breakfast or getting dressed? Well, if you have a Google Assistant or Google Home, we can help with that. The Guardian Briefing is an experiment from The Voice Lab, which in under two minutes brings you up to speed with what you need to know about the day's top stories. We'll make sure you don't miss a thing. To listen at any time, just say, Hey Google, speak to the Guardian briefing. Welcome back to Chips with Everything. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. Before the break, freelance journalist Leyland Checo told us about a recent pause on plans to build a smart neighbourhood in Toronto because of criticism from experts, the public, and from within the project itself. Toronto is not the only city with plans to become smarter. With smart cities being proposed all over the world, experts are now examining the potential ramifications for individuals. Where are we talking to you today? Um, I'm in Edinburgh, where I actually live. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Do you commute to Newcastle? I do in term time. And a little bit... Lillian Edwards is a professor of law, innovation and society at the law school at Newcastle University. In 2016, she wrote a paper titled privacy, security, and data protection in smart cities. The very first line of which reads, smart cities are a buzzword of the moment. One of the things I was thinking about when you asked me to talk on this is how things have changed since 2016. Because at that point, when we started looking at that work, um, it was very much a positive idea from a point of view of environmentalism. 
you know, the kind of buzz was around sustainability and that this would help cities save energy and things like that, have more integrated transport systems, have more smart metering. And then the buzz became very different. It went through like two different stages, I think, one of being about state surveillance so smart CCTV, integrated CCTV, being able to track terrorists wherever they went, face recognition, gate recognition, all that kind of stuff. So that was one kind of fork, which seems less utopian. And the other kind of fork has been into commercial surveillance and the fact that these, you know, these, these smart cities that we're envisaging now might be little empires of the tech giants, you know, of Google, of Facebook and so forth, of Amazon, right? And that is a lot where the interest lies now. So it was sort of fascinating to think about how things have changed in the last three years. There seem to be various plans to transform cities like this, but are there already some smart cities out there? So I'm talking to you from London. Is London a smart city? I would not say London is a smart city. The whole idea of talking about smart city, people were saying, in fact, on Twitter just recently, maybe the idea of a smart city has um, already passed, as it were. Maybe what we're talking about is smart buildings or integrated transport or, you know, smart emergent adaptive systems. But it's hard to say that any city is a smart city out the box. What we've got are two types, right? We've got old cities, as I say, London, even Utrecht, um, Rio, Barcelona, all these places where there's bolt-ons, which have typically been things like integrated transport, better energy systems, better smart transport systems. And on the other hand, you've got brand new cities. And that is really only a feature of the global south. Songdu is one that's always mentioned in South Korea. So that that's the kind of poster child for the built from scratch out the box as if you've got them from Ikea. Smart cities. Lillian says that one of the problems with smart cities is that while the term gets thrown around a lot, the general public doesn't necessarily know what it means. Sociologically, what is interesting is how it's being leveraged as a term for various political goals. So, you know, what I've been saying is originally it was being leveraged to provide kind of municipal credibility. You know, that's very much how Barcelona used it as well. But laterally, it's being used perhaps to get um, venture capital. It has no real technical meaning. And you can talk, as I say, about other phrases, smart buildings is now quite a commonly used phrase. Um, People I know at Newcastle work in a smart building. It's one of the, they've been gathering data about everyone who occupies it for a year now. Uh, With consent, do those people know that's happening? It is an interesting uh, question whether consent is needed for that kind of data gathering. As a data protection lawyer, I would say yes. And I think as an ethics person, as an AI ethics, which is also a very big player in these fields nowadays, you would also say, yes, there ought to be informed consent. But on the other hand, the law might say that the data that is gathered is probably aggregate in the main rather than individualized. And therefore, there is an argument that it's not personal data. And so consent isn't needed. But I would say personally, I don't agree with that argument. So you write about the issue of meaningful consent in your paper. Can you explain what you mean by meaningful consent and how smart cities in particular might pose a threat to it? Data protection law and other types of privacy laws talk a lot about consent. 
consent isn't always necessary to gather personal data, but it often is, and you can regard it as a good practice to think about it. The GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, lays down requirements for consent, for example, that it should be free, um, that it should be specific, that it should be informed. Smart environments don't lend themselves well to this at all. If you're wandering around a public square and data is being gathered about you, perhaps by CCTV, perhaps by Wi-Fi hotspots that you are passively logging into, um, perhaps by radio beacons, perhaps by the GPS signals that your phone is giving out or collecting. Um, when do you get the opportunity to consent or to opt out of consenting? A lot of these devices don't tend to have interfaces. They're not on the web. There isn't a box for you to click I consent. And even if you did, is it meaningful? Which is a question also for the web as in you don't know what's going to be done with the data. You don't really know where it's going to be shared to. You don't know what inferences are going to be drawn from it that might affect your future life. So the whole question of meaningful consent is really uh, imperiled right now, but even more so, I think, in a smart Internet of Things environment. Russia issued a very sharp warning following a New York Times report that the U.S. deployed cyber weapons deep into the Russian electrical grid. News of the American intrusion into Russian networks comes nearly one Then there are the security risks involved with making our cities reliant on this kind of infrastructure. Recently, the New York Times reported that, according to officials, the U.S. has deployed malware in Russia's power grid, which Russia itself did to an area in Ukraine a few years ago. Building more technologically advanced infrastructure for our public systems might leave us even more vulnerable to some unfriendly visitors. The, the basis of the technologies here in terms of, you know, originally things like RFID chips and since more advanced technologies was that they were not consumer facing. They were done in an industrial context, business to business, being sold at quite a basic level of infrastructure. And therefore, security in the sense that we're now talking about wasn't a priority. They weren't malware targets. So many of them have quite poor security. There has been a lot of work going on in this in the last couple of years, as this has become part of vital critical infrastructure, as they call it. But certainly there's tremendous amount of potential there for being hacked, essentially. And the other factor that's sort of connected is the lack of robustness or sustainability of these technologies. Because if you think about it, you expect a house to last for you know centuries, right? You expect a roof to last for 20 years. But these technologies, they go out of date. So you have problems of keeping the software updated or keeping the hardware updated. And we're building this as a city, you know, in a way that I think isn't being sufficiently thought about, though, you know, the architecture people, the materials people are, again, getting in on this on a research level. But it's a huge infrastructural problem. One of the biggest questions to come out of Leyland's story on Toronto in particular is about the involvement of big tech companies like Google. Experts like Lillian are concerned about the possibility of big tech turning our cities into what, as we heard, former Privacy Commissioner of Ontario Anne Kavukian called smart cities of surveillance. 
And the locals, interestingly, have kind of risen up in a grassroots movement and opposed this and really said, yeah, Google is taking over this part of our city. Because it's going on at a privatized level. You know, if New York tried to build a little fiefdom in Kent, you know, we'd really think about it. You know, we'd think about what does this say for our municipal services? What does it say for our political sovereignty? All that kind of stuff, right? What does it say for our democratic rights? You know, do we vote in New York or do we vote in the UK? All these kind of, you know, really blatant issues. But when something like Google builds essentially part of a city, a neighborhood in Toronto, it's generally seen, I think, initially as a really good thing. You know, it's an injection of funding. It's it's relief on city problems. Um, so it's taken that grassroots opposition to make people wake up to this about whether this is a kind of unconstitutional private takeover or whether it is, you know, as I say, a good thing, whether it is an injection of capital. So the question then is, having raised the problem, what solutions do you see? You know, what, what way is there to re-inject democracy back into this? People have proposed solutions for how tech companies could appease the public with the way they store and use data. In their statement to Leyland, Sidewalk Labs said that any data they collect in public space, quote, must be overseen and closely controlled by an independent and publicly accountable data trust. And this is actually something that Lillian has been looking into. So the idea is that though the data might be gathered by Google or Cisco or Siemens or whoever, they might be compelled by law to put it into some kind of trust that they hold for the benefit of the people in the area. So when you talk about, say, the advantages to lower emissions, why couldn't that data be put into a trust where it's held for the benefit of the local community and they can use it and the local authority, the city, can use it? So I think that's a really interesting solution that's got legs and we will see more of. So say we went with a solution like that, how would you enforce it? It seems like we've had difficulties enforcing these kinds of things before. Yeah, I think it would possibly have to be enforced by law. It's an interesting question. The GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, is beginning to make inroads that are fines being passed it's only been in force for a year, remember. It takes a year to investigate claims. So we're seeing a number of cases coming through on the GDPR that are likely to lead to very large fines, which I think will modify big tech behavior. In terms of data trusts, there might then be a headwind to encourage companies to go for these solutions so as to avoid further mandatory legislation, right? So bargaining in the shadow of the law, as they sometimes call it, you know, avoiding regulation by self-regulation. That may be optimistic. It may need actual regulation. And again, we've got the problem of where these cities happen, because in Europe, you've got a strong privacy data protection legislation culture, whereas not so much in the USA, a bit more in Canada, where Toronto is, obviously, rather less so in India and China. So a lot of this is going to be based on the local kind of legal norms. So this week, Sidewalk Labs is scheduled to hand over the final plans for the design of this smart city to Waterfront Toronto, which will ultimately decide whether or not to go ahead with the project. This decision, according to Leyland Checo, 
has the potential to influence future smart city plans. It feels like if it doesn't go ahead, and, and as you point out, that's entirely speculative at this point, that it's been a very healthy lesson for civic debate because it really forces companies and organizations like Sidewalk Labs to, before they put these proposals forward, to think what do people want from a city and what do people value in a city? And I think that what we've seen with the Sidewalk Labs fiasco is not just a resistance to kind of big technology, but a fear that the things that we value in a city could be a risk. If Sidewalk Labs doesn't go ahead, it shouldn't be seen as a deterrence from other organizations from kind of saying we can build a better city. But I think it really is incumbent on technology companies to, to, to look at what people actually want in these cities when they kind of move forward with these projects. Huge thanks to Lillian Edwards and Leyland Checo for joining me this week. There will be a link to Leyland's article and Lillian's paper on the Guardian website. As always, send me any of your ideas for future shows. I'm at chipspodcast at theguardian.com. I'm off to head home, away from the not-so-smart city of London, where all I really want from the trains is that they'll run on time. Chips is produced by Danielle Stevens. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. Thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.